just leave it right here. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Well, maybe I should do this just in case. Just put it on. Put sleep on. Put it on sleep. Yep, don't know what you're talking about. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> okay, so I just have to say, before this I was hanging out with Shannon and Arnisha, and Arnisha does these really, she has this really awesome thing that she's doing for her thesis or job or whatever, and it's like helping, so tornadoes, it's helping like give us warning time up to two more hours. This is what she, her project is, okay? It's a real thing. And then she has enough guts to tell me, but I'm just doing the boring part. And she's explaining it to me, and it's not boring at all. And so I was thinking about what my job is tonight, and my job's kind of the boring part. I'm just kind of going through and telling you basically exactly what the text is saying and what people say that the text is saying and, like, historical stuff about the text. And then Scott's going to come in and do his little sprinkle his little magic dust and tell you how it connects. And so for a while it might feel like, okay, this is just information. Does it even apply to me? And I just want you to track with me as much as you can because I think there are things that we can learn through this, okay? But um, I'm going to try to make this not boring, okay? Part of the, part of the reason... Part of the way to know this is not going to, for this to not be boring is if you understand that it's really complicated. And so maybe just discovering what things mean can be kind of fun. Okay? So we're going to start with that because it is very complicated. Um, if I can have somebody do me a big favor and read, um, what I'm going to need is someone to read. I, I mean, I can do it if you really don't want to, but I'd really rather not. So, okay, An you'll do it, Anthony? Scott doesn't like it when I read, so <laughs> Uh, I'll choose you. I'm okay. good with you. Okay, awesome. so Anthony's going to read, and we're going to read Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read, I want you to read 2 through 13. We're going to read 2 through 13, and then we're going to stop, and I'm going to kind of break it down verse by verse, and then we will read 14 through 29, and that part will be able to fly through a little bit quicker, but this transfiguration business is our first uh, stop and it's just a little bit complicated. So, um, go for it. Okay. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah <laughs> appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came by and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no more anyone, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. <laughs> and they asked him, saying, what do the scribes, uh, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did him, they did to him whatever they wished, it, as it is written of him. Thank you. I think you did a fine job. So. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, <clears throat> so 
that's a little bit confusing. I don't know if you guys are confused about anything that it says, but it is a little bit confusing. And in college, we took this uh, class about how to interpret what Scripture is saying. And um, it's called Principles of Interpretation. And uh, one of the things it tells you to do is to read the text and read it in several translations and then just to write down as many questions as you can as you have about the text and then start going through one by one with those questions and studying and digging and digging and trying and try to answer those questions. And as you answer the questions, more questions arise and that, that kind of can help lead you as you, as you're studying. So that's kind of what I did first. I went through and I just kind of started to underline everything that was kind of confusing and I ended up underlining almost the whole thing. So kind of felt like it was failing me, this method was. And so I just started from scratch. And I said, okay, I'm just going to start with the commentary. And I'm going to jump and start looking at what more and more people say. And I'm going to start comparing them and see if we can get to the bottom of some of these things. Um, the first thing I want to say is just that this is also found. It's found in all of the synoptic gospels. So it's found in Matthew 17. It's found in Luke 9, and then obviously here in Mark 9. Okay, synoptic, same Gospels. Those are very similar. John is different, so not that one, but these. Okay, so it's in, it's in the Gospels, okay? Um, and so I'm going to read verse 2 again, and we're going to start there. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. After six days in Matthew, Matthew says eight days. Um, Mark here says six you try to wonder why would they say different numbers? Nobody knows. Um, some people like to say that they say six days because it could relate to some things that happened with Moses, but there's really no proof of that. So really what, I'm, what I think they mean by six days is just that they want you to know that it happens after and kind of shortly after the account in eight, in chapter eight. Um, I want you guys to really kind of look back at eight real quick and look whenever Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. That's 27 through 30. That's something that's going to be kind of, we're going to kind of go back to as we look at the transfiguration. Okay. So six days later, so not very long after chapter eight happened, right? Um, it says that they, he took with him Peter and James and John. I think that's odd. I mean, I know that he pulls them aside a lot of times, but it's, it's kind of weird. What, what about the transfiguration can't be said to the, all the disciples, right? What about the transfiguration is not something that he wants to share with all the disciples. Why just three of them? Um, I think that we kind of can find some answers to that later on in the text. And then it says they went up on a high mountain. Um, we don't know what mountain it is. None of the gospels say what mountain it is. Um, people like to speculate certain mountains, and they choose mountains that are around the region of Caesarea Philippi because the last time that it says where they were, it was um, in verse 27 of chapter 8, and it says that they were in villages around Caesarea Philippi. So people kind of speculate it was on a mountain around there, but we don't know that for sure. So then we keep moving on. <laughs> yeah, don't know a whole lot yet, okay? So we keep moving on. And it says that he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. So the next big question would be, what, is, what does it mean to be transfigured? What is that? That's a weird, that's a weird concept. Um, it means like transformed. That's what it means. Like his appearance was different. He's transformed. Something happened, okay? Now it's important to know, this is important to know, it happened to Jesus. It didn't happen to Peter, James, and John. In just a minute, we're going to be introduced to Moses and Elijah are going to come on the scene, but it only happened, this only happened to Jesus. And the other thing is that's kind of interesting is actually what I just said, is that he was transfigured. That's kind of interesting. And if you study that, that little phrase, was transfigured, it's a, it's a 
kind of, it's a divine passive, and it indicates that God's responsible for the transfiguration, for the transfiguring of Jesus, which is kind of interesting um, to note. Um, we don't know for sure what transfigured all means for, for Jesus at this time, because the Gospels don't say, but we do know, um, just like, we, we do know what Mark said, which is that his garments became intensely white, so he's probably, I'm assuming, probably almost glowing a little bit. And then in Matthew, it talks about how his, actually his face was altered, and it shone like the sun. So those are kind of what we, know, what we know as far as that goes. And then in verse 4, it says this, And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> okay, what the what? I don't understand. Why would Elijah and Moses come? That makes zero sense to me, right? And then it says they're talking with Jesus doesn't tell us what they were talking about it doesn't tell us it doesn't tell us anything it just tells us there's Moses and Elijah they were talking that's what it says okay and then Peter's about to put his foot in his mouth that's basically what's going to happen right here okay so what's with Elijah and Moses well tradition like traditionally we would say that represents the law and the prophets Moses would represent the law Elijah would represent the prophets it is interesting. I don't even know if this really means anything or if it just happens to be how it was recorded. But it is interesting. In the other accounts, they say Moses first and then Elijah. And in Mark, he says Elijah first, which is kind of interesting. Um, but they, most people attribute this to law and prophets and that they represent something there. We don't know what they talked about. Mark doesn't say. But Luke actually tells us that they did talk about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. So they started, so essentially death and resurrection. They started talking about um, what's going to, what's coming, okay? Um, That is something they talked about. Now, what's even more, what's even weirder about Moses and Elijah is that before this, they're never talked about in scripture together as forerunners of the Messiah. Like they're never, they're never together. But what's kind of strange is that in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, there is something that's said. And what is said is this, I will send my messenger ahead of you who shall prepare your way. And actually that exact phrase is used with Moses in Exodus 23.20, talking about preparing the way um, for them to inherit the promised land. And then it's also, t- that same exact phrase is actually used in Malachi 3.1 with Elijah. And so that's kind of interesting. Now that phrase is used with both of them, and then it's used again here. I mean, that's kind of a weird thing. It's a big phrase. I will send my messenger ahead of you who shall prepare your way. So those are some interesting things about Elijah and Moses. But here's what I don't want to do, is I don't want to just become fixated on Elijah and Moses. And this is why. Because Peter actually starts to do that. And so what we see next is Peter. Are any of you guys named Peter? Okay, good. Because Peter's kind of an idiot, okay, in, in here. And he, does, he says some really awesome things, but he also says some really stupid things, okay? He seems to talk when he's nervous, when he's failing, when he's doing the right thing, when he's doing the wrong thing, when he's happy, when he's excited, when he's sad. He talks all the time. I don't know anyone like that that talks all the time. <laughs> no. Um, but he, so he puts his foot in his mouth right here, okay? So here's what he says. Let's, let's check it out. He says, it says, they're all talking, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, okay? Who, and Jesus is transfigured by this point, you know? So they're talking, and Peter decides, why not say something? And so Peter says, it says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, that's mistake number one, it is good that we are here, okay? 
let us let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Strike number two. Okay, he barely said like two sentences. And actually he said two sentences and he screwed it up twice. The first one is rabbi. You guys know what rabbi means, right? Anybody know? Teacher. teacher. Means teacher. Okay. Remember, what we did, what I say to Mark in chapter 8 is that Peter had just claimed, right? He, he declared Jesus is who? He's the Messiah. And then here, all of a sudden, the first way he addresses him, why he's tra- in a transfigured state with Moses and Elijah is not Messiah, is not Lord, is not even Jesus. It is teacher. <laughs> that makes no sense, okay? But you want to note that because it's an error, okay? So note that. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. This is error number two. Error number two. Moses is not transfigured. Elijah is not transfigured. Jesus is transfigured. Jesus is filled with glory. Okay? They're overwhelmed. They're terrified because of what has happened, right, to Jesus. Okay? And yet, he's just saying the first thing that comes to his mind, which is, oh, teacher, this is good. Let me build, let's build a shelter for each of you. Okay? And then, I think this is really interesting, for all the times that Peter puts his foot in his mouth and for all the times that the disciples misunderstand what's going on, um, that's not really Mark's emphasis here, which is kind of weird because usually that, that, that's one of the emphasis. But actually, Mark even gives an explanatory comment right after he says what Peter says. Mark, Mark says this. He says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's kind of like, yeah, Peter put his foot in his mouth, but... Granted, he didn't know what to say. He was terrified. And so even more than highlighting an error that Peter does, he's highlighting the fact that there is like glory of Jesus going on. And that's kind of the cause for the stumbling through whatever you're thinking at the moment. Okay? Now, <clears throat> let me think through. I think I already talked about those things. So let's go to verse 7. Okay. A cloud overshadowed them. So after Peter says that, a cloud overshadows them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Sounds kind of like, a ba- like what happened at Jesus' baptism, right? Um, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I love that. I love it. I love it too, Anthony. Okay. So I'm going to say it one more time. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So there are a couple things that happen here. He, in that statement, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That is both affirming what Peter said in chapter 8. This is the Messiah. And it's rebuking the mistake that Peter just made. Isn't that kind of cool? It is affirming what Peter declared in chapter 8, and it is rebuking what he, just, what he just now did, the error he just made. And then I think this is, it, it's really cool because they look around, and all of a sudden Moses isn't there anymore. Elijah isn't there anymore. It's Jesus only. Jesus only. There is an absolute, this is just a side note, for free. Absolute uniqueness in Jesus. Um, Elijah and Moses, they appear to speak to Jesus, but they're not transfigured. Only Jesus is. 
the voice says nothing about these great Old Testament saints, but singles out and announces Jesus as God's only son. For Mark, the Christian faith involves Jesus only. There's no room for anyone else to share in his glory. That's just a side note, okay? But it's important. Okay, number, uh, verse 9, number 9. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Pause. That's pretty typical. Messianic secret. You guys know this? Yes? Okay. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he tells them when they can tell. It's kind of interesting. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I wish I had a better understanding of what exactly the environment would have been on this mountain, because all I can picture is walking down from this thing that I did in high school called Youthquake, which is a mountain in Colorado, which is completely different than a mountain where they were. And um, I'm imagining people talking in front of me, like about something I said that they don't understand. That's what I'm, that's what I'm picturing here. They questioned amongst themselves what's, go- what's going on. Um, in verse 9, I think it helps us understand why it's just Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus on the mountain. He told them that not to tell anybody until he had risen from the dead. The transfiguration, one of the primary purposes of it is that it's pointing to the resurrection and that there's a, there needs to be witnesses at this transfiguration. So whenever the resurrection happens and his appearing happens and the ascension happens, that these disciples can kind of bear witness and remember that Jesus, Jesus claimed this and said this, and they can tell people then. But they, won't, they kind of don't make a whole lot of sense without each other. Okay, And so part of the reason I think he didn't have a whole lot of people up on the mountain with him, or even just all of the disciples, is I think it would have just caused a lot of confusion. And the reason, another reason I think that is because he is often misunderstood by his disciples. But this idea, I don't know if you remember that what they've been talking about, but how... He is, Jesus is Messiah, he is king, and then the second half is the king or the Messiah must suffer. Well, they do not understand that concept. And, they're, and, and Jesus keeps bringing it up, and they just keep not understanding that. And so whenever he says, rise from the dead, again, they're like, what does that mean? What's going to happen? Why is he talking like that? Right? They don't understand. So for everybody to hear that and be confused would really make not a whole lot of sense. Um. But like I said, there, should, there needs to be witnesses to this account or we wouldn't be reading this, right? So, okay. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I missed there. I don't think so. All right, let's jump to verse 11. It says, and they asked him. So now they're walking down the mountain. And they asked him, why do the scribes say, and this part I think is, besides the Moses and Elijah part, this part I think is the most confusing. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, and it sounds like he's saying two completely different things to answer this question. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he says this, and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay, that just feels very random. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written. Okay, does that not sound like really bizarro that he would just say, make that random comment about him suffering? And send him, why does it say the Son of Man should, should die and suffer, right? And then it goes back and talks about Elijah again. It just kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But here's what the disciples are wondering. They're wondering how the resurrection of the Son of Man related to the Old Testament tradition of the return of Elijah. 
because the return of Elijah is supposed to come first. And Jesus says, yes, the scribes are right. Elijah it does come first. But then he, then he reminds them what he has been already telling them, which is, why does it say the Son of Man must... How does he say it? Why does it say... I'm going to say it the right, I'm going to say it the right way. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's basically saying, this is going to happen. Therefore, Elijah has already come. That's what he's saying to them. This has already happened. Elijah has already come. And in the Gospel of Matthew, in his account, it says that they realize at that moment that he's talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay? Essentially, the disciples are saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first before the kingdom of God arrives? And the resurrection of the Son of Man takes place. And Jesus says, they're right, Elijah will come first. But he's already come in the form of John the Baptist. Okay, I think a couple of things that are interesting are that there's this awkward, that awkward transition between 12a and 12b and that response from Jesus, essentially. It indicates that Elijah's return to restore all things is intimately associated with the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man. I just think that's really interesting. <laughs> and then I thought this was, a, this was just something I liked. So this is just something I'm telling you. Um, but one of the commentaries I read, they, they had this quote, and I thought it was, it just made me think. They said, they said this. Although Elijah was not martyred, but ascended into heaven without tasting death, the suffering mentioned in this verse probably refers to his treatment by Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3. Jezebel wanted to kill him. Okay, And then it says this, What Jezebel tried unsuccessfully to do, however, was accomplished by Herodias. That's what it says. What they're saying there is that, you know, John the Baptist was, he was beheaded by Herodias. I thought that was really good and interesting. And maybe you drew would think it's wrong and he could just tell you that later <laughs> so, but yeah I thought it was interesting okay um so and that now we're at the end of this part and I just want to say that what's the point of the transfiguration we kind of talked about it already but I think the point of it is that it's uh, there's this proleptic which is like a precursor someone to hear and see this vision that helps explain something that's going to come later I think that's part of it. And then I think another part of it is that it's showing these three disciples his messiahship, his authority, um, his glory. I think that's another really important part is it's kind of a divinity passage, okay, claiming who Jesus is. So I think those are two kind of points of the transfiguration. And then we go from this mountaintop experience, glory of Jesus, he's transfigured, crazy experience, write down like this next part actually the transition into this next part is like that those three disciples and Jesus meet with meet the other disciples and there's an argument going on because the disciples um cannot cast out the demon of a child okay so it's like these highest of highs to these depths that's what we're going to so I need somebody to read again and read verses 14 through 29. What's your name? Ethan. Ethan. I'm going to make you, I'm going to pretend like you're in elementary for a minute. Sorry. That's what I do on Sundays. What, so your name's Ethan and what grade are you in? I'm a senior. 
senior at at what school? At Oklahoma State. At Oklahoma State. Anybody in here from Oklahoma State? <laughs> this is what I do on Sundays. Okay. And how old are you, Ethan? Twenty-two. Twenty-two. And when's your birthday? June twenty second. What a good day! Woo woo. Okay, Ethan, go ahead and read for us, verse fourteen through twenty nine. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, "What are you arguing about with them?" And someone from the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Mm. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. <laughs> and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the, boy, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So that's a really cool story. And <clears throat> we're going to fly through it because I know Scott will spend kind of more time in this story. Okay. But it was like a really cool story. And then the last line kind of throws you and you go, what? Why do you say something like that? This kind can only be driven out by prayer. Okay. Well, this was really cool until you said that. And now I'm confused again. Right. So we're going to try to fly through this. And I'm going to let Scott answer the question about the prayer. Okay. So, here we go. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, ran up to meet him, and greeted him. So, again, transition. There are some people that think that people were amazed because Jesus maybe was still glowing or something. They reference how Moses was glowing when he came down from the mountain. We do not know that. The text does not say that. So, they could have been amazed because maybe they hadn't seen Jesus before and they'd heard of the healings that he'd been doing. We don't know. But they're amazed and they run to see him nonetheless. Okay? And he asked them, what are you arguing about? Okay? And I want to note here that Jesus seems to be if you read the phrases that he says, he seems to be exasperated with the people. He's asking them questions like he's exasperated, okay? Now, take that for what it is. Texting sometimes can be misinterpreted, and I kind of think this is a little bit like that in a way because I don't know the tone, but it seems to be that he's exasperated, okay? So he says, what are you arguing about then? Someone from the crowd answers, So, um, and it's actually the father of the child, he says, teacher, I brought my son to you. So he had to have some sort of faith, right? I brought my son to you, 
for he has a spirit that makes him mute, so he can't speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. That's interesting because Jesus has empowered them to do this, and they've done this before. So he had to have some faith because he brought his kid to them to cast out the demon. But the more they couldn't do it, it's almost like part of that faith whatever he did have, is probably diminishing a little bit, right? I would assume. Um, Okay, we go to the next. Oh, before we do that, some people would say that this sounds like like an epileptic issue, but Mark, just so everybody's aware, completely tells us this is a demonic issue. So, just so you know. Um, And it says, and he answered them. Again, exasperated. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. That's what Jesus says. How much longer shall I put up with you? He's speaking to everyone. So he's, he's exasperated. <laughs> um, these questions not just, don't just reveal his exasperation, but also that his time is nearing. Jesus' time is nearing. Basically, how long shall I be with you? In the book of Mark, that means not long. That means like soon, soon something's going to happen. Okay? And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. This is typical. The demon at at seeing Jesus acts very violently. The only difference between here and other times that we see Jesus interacting with like a demonic situation is that this, this doesn't speak. Nothing speaks. But they also say that it caused him to be mute. So I don't know if those are related or not, but they might be. Um, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often casts him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. One of the commentators noted this. He said, if you are able, (laughs) right? If you are able, if you can do anything. Um, And then Jesus says, if you are able, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And one of the commentators said this, uh, how can anyone talk about possibility with God? (coughs) Like, how exasperating is that? (laughs) If you are able, if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. I think it's interesting that Jesus shifts that, right? He's talking about the ability of Jesus to cast out the demon. Jesus shifts it to the ability of the man to believe. I think that's interesting, you know? And then it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. If you have a Bible, you should underline that verse. I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to come back to that. I do want to note that Jesus can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants. But that in in chapter 6 of Mark, it does talk about how um, the lack of faith hinders the work of Jesus in a certain place. So, um, they, he can do whatever he wants. But I do think that our faith is a very important thing, and our belief is a very important thing. Um, and when Jesus saw the crowd, that the crowd came running, I think that's interesting. Usually, when Jesus sees the faith, of, it says, like, and when he saw their faith, or the faith of their friends, or then he heals. And this one says, and when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. Um, the description of that healing reveals both the strength of the demon and the success of the exorcism, okay? And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. 
And when he entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, almost like, I don't know if they're wanting an explanation or if they're embarrassed, but they ask him privately. And they say, why could we not cast it out? They're wanting an answer. And he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So driven out by prayer, what does that mean? Like, is there a right way and a wrong way to do this? Um, we're not sure because Mark doesn't tell us. <laughs> I know. I like how I say that a lot. We're not sure. We're not sure because Mark doesn't tell us. But things that we do know about prayer is that prayer cannot be manipulated for situational purposes. So it's not like prayer plus this equals this equals exorcism. That's not how it works. Okay. That's not how this works by, by far. Okay. And then I do know this. He does talk about unbelief and faith and lack of faith. And I do know there is a correlation in my personal life between the way that I pray and the belief that I have. And so I, I was actually just talking to my friends about this today. Um, that I have, so this is my only example, and then you can come up. But, like, I have these deep longings that I believe are God-given longings, and I pray for the, these things to happen. But I, found my, I have found myself leaning so bent on the sovereignty of God, which is a good thing, okay, to believe that God is sovereign. But I sometimes find myself in my prayer using His sovereignty almost to cover up a lack of faith I have in Him actually fulfilling some longing that I might have. And so my prayers will start sounding more like, Lord, I know you are good even if I don't understand or even if I don't. And I, it's like I'm afraid to ask for things because I ask for them. And then I quickly say, but if it doesn't happen, of course I still believe in you and I still follow you 100%. And you're the one. So then it's like, why, do I, why would I even ask for anything? Right? If I don't even believe anything is ever going to happen. But then there's the opposite of that, and it's where you claim everything in the name of Jesus. And that's wrong, too. You know, so there's balance. But because I don't do this, I swing sometimes the often all the way to this side. And so when I think about, like, prayer and belief, I know for me, those things are actually are very, very intertwined. And so that's kind of where I want to leave that. Oh, and then my last thing is why the second passage that we looked at talks a lot about belief and unbelief. Both of these passages, I don't want you to miss this. As much as we can dissect them and we can apply them to us, and those are good things, but these two passages are very, very, very much about Jesus Christ. There's the authority of Jesus Christ. There's the messiahship of Jesus Christ. There is the glory of Jesus Christ. He is greater than Moses and Elijah. He is greater than the three disciples that were with him on the mountain. He is greater than the disciples that could not cast out the demon. He's greater than the power of the demon. He's greater than the people he's with. And he's going to suffer and die. And that's what this is talking about. So I just want you guys to, to note those two things. Okay, you can have a three-minute break. Sorry for going on. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. So Drew needs to interrupt. I am recording. Thank you. Thank you, Dad. Um, <laughs> that's true. I am gambling. I'm not going to get in a game with him. He will win every time. Oh, my goodness. Don't know how this got real. I'm, I, I'm being recorded. I can't. I can't. I can't. 
All right. So I love I love this story. <clears throat> um, specifically, the second one. Obviously, the first one's pretty pretty crazy, pretty awesome, complicated at the same time. But I love this second story. I think there's a couple things that come out in it that gives us a, an opportunity to talk about something I think is worth talking about. Um, and so, I, first, I want to start with a couple stories. I, I, I never, I'll never forget um, where I was. It was in Joplin, Missouri. It was spring of, of 1999. So some of you were just learning how to walk. Um, kindergarten. Uh, please. Please tell me all of you were born by 1999. Okay, okay, good. Um, so, wow, Doogie Hauser here. So, so spring of 1999, um, I was walking around on the campus of Ozark Christian College down by the creek. Um, and, uh, and I had everything going for me at this point. I mean, I had, I had great French friendships. I had incredible friends, actually. The kind of friends that, you know, you want your parents to know about. The kind of friends that inspire you to want to be um, better people. I mean, they were awesome friends. I had, had a beautiful wife. I'd been married uh, to my first wife at that point for about nine months. Um, my first and favorite wife, Ryan, is, is, is her. <laughs> had you. You're, you're all like... Yeah. Yeah. First and she is. She is my first and favorite wife, um, Ryan. So we've been married for about nine months at that point, and um, and it just I mean a, a lot going for me. But part of the issue was I didn't have good direction. You guys ever been in college and just not know what you want to do with the rest of your life? Yes, anybody anybody relate to that? That was me. In the spring of 99, um, you know, I, I, I went to junior college right out of high school for about a year and a half, basically extended high school, wasted my time, worked full-time, made a lot of money, didn't care about school. So when I transferred to Ozark, actually, I, I transferred in with, with a set, like a purpose. I, I really wanted to grow in my faith, but I never saw myself doing ministry. And at Ozark, if you don't, if you don't want to preach, if you don't want to do youth ministry, worship ministry, or missions, then, then you, at that time, you really didn't fit into their mold, so to speak, and so I didn't fit into any of those, and so I'm, I'm, you know, two and a half years in, going, what am I going to do? Now I have a wife to take care of, and, and, and that season was, was, you know, was, a, I don't know, a heavy season for me, and, and with that came, I started questioning everything. Not only was I questioning my ability, like, do I really have what it takes to do this? Do, do I really want to do this? Am I, I started questioning, do I really believe this stuff? Like, I'm going to base my whole life on this, on a guy that lived 2,000 years ago who died on the cross and they say rose from the dead. Do, do I really believe that? Am I willing to like place everything on that? See, I'd been raised in a Christian home. I had great parents who modeled this for me and um, you know, taught us about Jesus. And, and it really didn't stick for me until I was about 19 or 20. Um, is when it became personal, but at, up, to, up to this point, I was 22 years old, married, at a Bible college, is when I decided to finally start really questioning some of these things, and really wondering, do I believe this because my parents believe this, or do I believe this because all these people are telling me to believe it, or do I really, do I really believe this? And, and at that point, I couldn't deny what God had done, there were certain things that had happened, but I was, I was again, it was a season of trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life, and, and also starting to really go, wait a minute, I haven't, 
I haven't like studied the other sides of these things. I haven't studied what other people, how other people answer these questions. I need to probably start doing that. And so all of this came at once. It was kind of this perfect storm of, of doubt. And so I don't know if you've been there. I don't know if you've had these moments or these questions where, um, where, where you, you have these doubts, you have these questions, you don't know what to do with, you don't know what it means. And, and it can be scary and confusing. Um, that was me, spring of 99. Well, um, fast forward about uh, four years. I worked through that, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. I worked through those, those doubts, obviously. I felt a call into ministry. Um, and then we left Joplin, Missouri and moved with my uh, first wife to um, California. And um, it's okay. She will never listen to this anyway. Um, moved to California. And we, uh, we, I was in ministry. I was at a church and, you know, in January of 2003, or 2001, sorry. So about almost three years of being in ministry. And when I got out there, I was ready to be done with school and academics, and I was ready to, to dive in and, and to, to really just do ministry. I was, I was excited. I wanted to read every ministry book there was. I wanted to learn what all these people were, other churches were doing that was successful, and I wanted to, to be a part of a, a successful ministry. I wanted to do things that were effective in people's lives. And so I started just working hard. I, I, I really was passionate about the things I was doing. And at some point... I got exhausted. Um, at some point, I reached this kind of breaking point um, of burnout three years into ministry. And I, I'll never forget, this time I was asked to go to this leadership conference. Actually, I was kind of made to go. I didn't really want to go. Um, I'd just come back from a, a leadership conference in, in uh, Atlanta, and I was burnt out, and so I wanted to just stay home. But the, the guy that I was kind of serving under said, I really need you to come to, to Portland. For this this other conference, um, by this pastor from Bogota, Colombia, who is way too charismatic for my um, for my liking, but he he felt like there was something there that we needed to go to, and I thought, okay, I'll go, but I'm just going to use this as like a reading trip. But sure, I'll 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 be there. We get up to Portland. It's November of 2003. I've been in California for three years. I didn't know what cold was. I had forgotten what cold was. I didn't have any cold. I didn't have any warm clothes. I didn't have any winter clothes. And so I'm, I'm up there. I'm bitter and cold. I'm bitter cold. And <laughs> I'm at this hotel, and I'm with a couple of people I know and several people that I don't know, um, all of which speak Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish. And, but we all came together. It was this weird group, okay, uh, weird trip. And I'm, I remember getting to the hotel. We got settled in. We met back down in the lobby, went and had dinner, came back. We are hanging out. And I just, the last thing I wanted to do was be with these people. I just, I needed to get out. And I got out and I started walking towards some mall to find some warm clothes. And I remember having this conversation with God saying, what the heck am I doing here? I didn't say heck. What am I doing here in, in, in Portland in November? I don't want to be here. And, and it was just complaining, complaining. And, and, it, and it started as, why am I in Portland to... Why am I in ministry? Like, nothing's working. Everything I'm trying, I feel like is failing. Everything, everything that I, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm reading everything. I'm listening as much as I can. And I'm trying to implement everything I'm learning. And it just feels like it's a waste of time. Like, I don't feel, success, I don't feel like I'm having any 
any uh, influence. I don't feel like I'm having any sort of impact in what I'm doing. And I, this is more of just a hissy fit, to be, to be honest. Um, but that's really where I felt. I, I felt like I was failing in ministry. And, uh, and so I'll never forget this, this still, quiet voice saying, you know, there's a reason why you're in Portland in November, and it's not for you, but it's, it's there, well, it is for you, but you wouldn't have chosen to be here, so just trust that I have you here for a purpose is kind of the, 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 the thing I heard. And, and for whatever reason, I surrendered to that by His grace. I surrendered, okay, I guess that makes sense. It's true, I wouldn't choose to be here, so I must be here for a reason. So I'll wait and hear what that is. But I, but I don't know. So what about you? Like what, have you, have you gotten to this point where you've had serious doubts, where you've wrestled with big questions, where you've experienced failure at some level? You know, if you haven't... Um, I don't, I don't mean to be a bearer of bad news, but there's a pretty good chance you will. Um, it's, and this isn't just, this is just common with Christian people. This is common across the board. Like, this is a human thing that, that we're going we're gonna to come to points in our life when we question things and we don't understand things and we can't explain things and we, we have doubts and we wonder and, and we reach the end of, our, end of ourselves where we, we, we discover our limitations and, and we bump up to them and we go, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can do this. Um, you know, they say that you're, when it comes to a storm, and I, and I think these, this, these two, two stories, two seasons of my life were, I would say, in some sense, a storm in my life. And they say you're either going into a storm in the middle of one or coming out of one. Um, it's kind of, you're either one of those three positions. And so what do you do when you're in the midst of these things? What do you, what do, you do when, you're, when you reach your limitations? You, you come to the end of yourself. And, and I think this, this text gives us an opportunity to talk about doubt and failure. Like, what do you do with those things? You, you see it in this father who, who confesses his unbelief. And you see it in the disciples who can't do something that Jesus gave them authority to do. Um, two chapters earlier. And and so, so what do we do? I, I sat out, so let's talk about doubt first. I sat out a few years ago um, to try and figure out what happened, or, or not what happened, but what, what the Bible says about doubt, because here's kind of what happened to me. Um, well, I, well I'll, I'll get to that in a second, actually. I'll tell you how I came through that particular season in spring of 99. But I was shocked at what the Bible says about doubt. I actually came expecting to hear one thing and I heard something different. So here's, here's in a nutshell, what it says. In Matthew 14, there's several verses. Um, I actually have a sheet printed out with all the different um, places where doubt comes up if you want. But uh, Matthew 14, Mark 11, and, and Matthew 28, are, these are three examples of Jesus interacting with people that have doubts. And uh, with the Matthew 14 one, it's, it's when Peter's walking on water, and uh, he, he starts to sink, and Jesus says, you have little faith, why do you doubt? And see, doubt, this is, this is my big discovery. Doubt in the New Testament is always um, portrayed in this negative light. And, and some of you might go, well, yeah, doubt's a bad thing. But that's not really what my experience has been. And I'll explain that in a second, but, but doubt 
in the New Testament is is a bad thing, and and you'll see you'll see what I mean. Jesus in Ma- in Mark eleven, we'll see in a couple chapters, tells his disciples after the, after he uh, had cursed this fig tree, and they see it. Hey, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, that that fig tree is actually cursed. You cursed it; it died. And he's like, I know. He says, have faith, Peter, disciples, and do not doubt. And if that's and if and if you have faith and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. Um, in, in Matthew 28, this one's fascinating to me. Matthew 28, anybody know what Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. It's where Jesus' last kind of statement to the last challenge to his disciples go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and, and I will be with you to the end of the age. That's 18 through 20. But in verse 17, okay, this is Jesus, this is resurrected Jesus. This is Jesus with scars in his hands. This is Jesus who's walked through walls. In verse 17, it says, some doubted. His disciples gathered to him, and some doubted. Isn't that amazing? They're face to face with the resurrected Jesus, and some doubted. It's interesting. Romans uh, 14 is this, is this one is the clincher. Uh, Romans 14, 28. It's in the context of this weaker brother, stronger brother thing, and um, in which Paul says, essentially says, action that's based on, okay, that's mo- action that's motivated by disbelief or doubt. Paul calls sin. Action that's motivated by disbelief or doubt, Paul says, is sin. And I was like, whoa, okay, so this doubt is not something that we need to mess around with. Um, in James 1, 5 through 8, James talks about doubt, and those who doubt are like a wave tossed back and forth, right? Something that's just swaying, you know, back and forth and in, in, in no control. It's, it's always portrayed in a negative light. And then Jude one twenty two is probably the kindest verse on doubt, and it says, be merciful to those who doubt. <laughs> doubt no. That's helpful. Thank you. I need that. I need, I need mercy because I have doubts. So my conclusion was this, when I studied through this, was that, that doubt is associated with fear. It's equated oftentimes with lack of faith, disbelief, and even sin. Um, it's a lack of trust in the promises of God. The, the doubter judges falsely, um, judges God falsely and makes himself judge. Um, and the doubter's belief and action do not coincide. So you have the New Testament's what it says about doubt. But then you have the story in Job. It's kind of a fascinating story. Crazy story. If you don't know the story of Job, you need to read that story. But wait, but read all the way to the end because it gets really, really good at the very end. Um, but the story of Job is this, this, this great guy who has terrible things happen to him and it seems to be God's okay with it. Like losing all his family, um, getting completely covered in boils, um, losing all his possessions. And the story of Job is his, his friends come to him. The, the best thing they did the whole time was not say anything for a whole week, and then they started talking. And when they started talking is when they got in trouble because their whole thing was, Job, listen, we know how God works, and there's no way you did nothing. You had to have done something, Job. This is, the way God works is He's punishing you for something you did, so why don't you just confess it and get it out? Quit lying to us. That's, that's Job's friends. 
We know how God works. He works this way, and you must have done something wrong. And Job says, I didn't do anything wrong. So God, why are you doing this to me? In other words, God, I know how you work, and I didn't do anything wrong. So why am I being punished? Both Job and his friends are questioning God, and, and you see it throughout the whole book. And then at the very end, God says, no, 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 you guys have talked, now let me talk. Let me question you. Let, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I... And all these things, and he just goes off. And Job finally um, relents, and he repents. And I love what it says in Job 42. Um, Job says, I know that you can do all things, that no, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I, I have uttered what I did not understand, two, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, I, now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it wasn't until after Job makes this confession that, that, that God says to his friends, after he rebukes his friends and he says to his friends, Job was right, by the way. He didn't do anything wrong. Like, I have a greater purpose in all this. And he, and he, in some sense, praises Job for his faithfulness. Wow. Is he calling? Yes. The rapture. <laughs> the rapture. He's, he's giving you a warning? Yes. That's awesome. I'm, that I'm so glad. Man, I'm so glad we're here with you. Um, well, apparently Jesus is coming tonight, so you know what that means. You better get ready. No test tomorrow. That's what that means. Um, but I love, I love this, I love this picture of, of Job questioning God throughout the whole time, and yet relenting and repenting in in, in humility when God finally calls him on it. Um, and so. So you see these two pictures, New Testament, understanding the story of Job and others um, that, that, that question God. The Psalms is full of David saying, God, where are you? How long do I need to wait for you? When are you going to rescue me? Are you going to let these people, these wicked people win? You know, so you see these, these Psalms of lament throughout, throughout, throughout David's writings. And this is what I love, that God never leaves Job, that even in the midst of Job's accusations... So God never leaves Job in the midst of his accusations. And Job never gives up on God even in the midst of his despair. It's this beautiful picture. I love this guy, Terrence Freitham says, I don't know how to say his name. He says, God is more honored by the impatient questions of Job than by the friends who place certain questions off limits. I thought that was great. Job's doubts never overshadowed um, uh, Job's doubts never overshadowed his faith. He never let his circumstances and his feelings um, thwart his trust and obedience to God. And so Job gives us this beautiful picture, just like this father in the story. Gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like in raw honesty, in anguish. This father is in anguish. Think about this father who, he's not just coming for the first time to, to get, he, he's, I would assume, like any father, he's been trying since, since the, the day this boy was seized with a demon to get this thing out of him. And he finally hears about the disciples, Jesus and his disciples coming. He, he doesn't just come 
to hear the disciples. He comes to Jesus. Jesus just doesn't happen to be with them. And the disciples, ah, oh, but it's okay. You're, you guys have been doing this. If anybody can do it, you can do it. And they can't do it. And then Jesus comes and, and he heals him and he dies. That, that's what it looks like. I mean, it's just this roller coaster. You see this anguish. And in the midst of this, you see this father saying, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. It's, it's this beautiful picture of this of, um, humble, repentant disbelief. It's recognizing, this is, this is where I know I should be. This is honestly where I'm at, God. And I'm praying and begging you to fill in, fill in the, the gap with your grace. So back to spring of 99. Um, you know, by God's grace, He had put people into my life that I knew I could talk to about these things. And uh, there's a particular person, he was a professor at the college. Um, he's, a, he's a really loud, sarcastic Canadian <laughs> named Jim Johnson. Um, he, he was a mentor of mine. My wife and I were in his small group with his wife and, and another, two other young couples. And, and so I, I finally, you know, after weeks of just kind of getting to a dark place, said, hey, I need to talk and we need, I, I've got, I don't know what to do with some of this stuff. And so we started talking through that and we, we read a book together and we looked at the scriptures and, and what I came, this book that I read, which I recommend, it's called The Myth of Certainty. Awesome book. Myth of Certainty. Phenomenal book. But in it, he helped me understand, he helped me see this, this tension um, that the Bible seems to hold about this, what the New Testament seems to describe about, about doubt, what, what the Bible seems to teach through the stories of Job and David, this tension between um, not trusting in our doubts, but trusting in God. Recognizing that, that we can have questions, we can, we can wrestle with things. In fact, God can use those things. I, I really believe that God helped me work through that process so that I could turn around and help someone else work through, through that process at some point. So I'm thankful for that season, even though I hated it. It sucked in the middle of it. Um, but I was able to, despite my doubts, I was able to take steps of faith and trust God to, to fill in the gap. And He did. And so your doubts can either draw you closer to God or they can, or they can push you further away. It just depends on what you choose to put action behind. That's what seems to be the New Testament witness about doubt is, is at the end of the day, where are you going to put action towards? You're going to put action towards your doubts and you're going to stay there and you're going to move that direction or are you going to, despite your questions, are you going to put action towards your faith? One, one thing I learned about doubt was it proved at least one thing and that is I don't know everything. Wow, there's, a, there's a, an epiphany that seems very obvious, but... For me, what that meant was, if, if I don't know everything, then I, I should probably trust the one I believe does know everything. And so my, my doubts in, that mo- in those moments, in that season, actually led me to greater faith. Because I just choose, chose to believe, yeah, I don't think my three and a half pound brain is going to figure all this out. So at some point, I'm going to have questions and I'm going to need to trust. And I'm just going to walk in faith and trust that God will provide answers. So let's talk about failures. Um, this story, this fascinating story, because J- Jesus uh, comes down from this mountain, and he, you know, in, in the first 
scene as he interacts with these disciples who, uh, who are arguing about this and he, they, can't, um, they can't heal this boy. And so this story, this little pericope, pericope if you will, begins and ends with the disciples, what they can't do. They can't heal this boy, and at the end it asks, it's them asking this question, uh, why couldn't we heal this boy, Jesus? And you see, you see Peter's failure, as, as Morgan described, on this transfiguration, saying the wrong thing. This is not uncommon for Peter. Um, you, you see this with the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry. They, they're, he's saying it plainly to them. He, we say it in this text, he said it plainly, I'm going to suffer and die and raise again. And they still go, I wonder what he meant by raise, raise from the dead. Um, they, they're not getting it. They're just not picking up on the obvious things. Maybe it's because Jesus spoke in parables and they always didn't know if they were coming or going or what was up or what was down. But at, at some level, their, their attempt at ministry was failing. And they couldn't do what the very thing that Jesus told them they could do. And he says to them, this kind can only come out um, by, can, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And essentially what they're asking is, okay, Jesus, you, you told us we have authority to do this, so where do we go wrong? What do we need to do to fix this? How, what's, the, what's the trick, Jesus? Like, is, are there certain ones that are harder than others? You've got to say different things. What, what do you got to do? Do I need to wave my hand? Do I need to get down, spit in the dirt like you did that one time? Do I need to stick my finger in their ears? I mean, what do I need to do, Jesus? And he says, he points them to something spiritual. They're, they're, they're seeking after something um, tangible and practical, and he points them to the spiritual. And, and that is essentially um, what happened to me in, in the fall of 20, or 2003. Um, so the next day, so back to this freeze, bitter cold um, moment in Portland. The next day I go to this conference and at some point in the day, somebody, one of the speakers said something and I realized why I was uh, being burnt out, why I was struggling so hard in ministries because I was focusing on figuring out this, this, the right formulas to get the right results. And, and this is what came and I'll, I'll never forget um, God saying to me, Ministry is not mechanical. It's a spiritual thing. You're trying to make this a mechanical thing. It's a spiritual thing. This isn't something you, you just get to figure out and plug and play and add the right things. This is, this is something that comes from the Father. So when, Je- so when Jesus says, this thing can only be come out by prayer, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't pray when he heals this, this boy. He didn't, he didn't pray in the text. Look, look back at at what he does. He just says, you, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out and never come in again. So what does he mean by prayer? Because he didn't, he didn't do what he's telling the disciples they need to do. And actually what I think is happening is Jesus isn't talking about saying a certain prayer, or reciting something, or some sort of spiritual incantation. Jesus is saying he's describing a life of prayer, a communion with the Father, an intimacy with God. Um, which is what Jesus had constantly. And so he's pointing them to, listen, this is, a, this is something that the Father can do. And you need to stay close to Him. You need to listen to Him. And so here's my, here's my, my point. Um, Jesus, just like Morgan said, Jesus is this messianic king who's on his way to suffer and die. And that's the way he's, he's, 
He is bursting forth His kingdom as the king by suffering and dying. And, and I think He's helping them see, listen, your way of doing this is not going to work. Like, my way of doing this is, is the only way that this is going to work. And, and so He's calling them to a life of prayer. Um, the failures in life, your failures in life, can be a beautiful thing. If, if you allow them to humble you and, and, and lead you to God and lead you to um, seeking Him in prayer. So, this is last thing I want to say. I want you to think about this. Um, Mark writes the, the book of Mark with Peter's help. We talked about this at the beginning of the year. Most likely Peter was helping you know, Mark know these stories. And, of course, we also believe that Matthew wrote some of this. So, he's... Mark's picking up some of this from Matthew's gospel and, and uh, from Peter's influence because they were in ministry together, we believe. And so at some point, this is 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus is when they're writing this story. So when Peter's helping Mark write this story and he's making himself look like an idiot, Peter's not worried about this because he, he, understood, he understood his failures then, right? So think about when you're in the midst of a failure, think about what, what, could, what life could be like in 5, 10 years, 20 years, when 30 years, when you choose, instead of succumbing to the failure, but seeking that as an opportunity to surrender to God. And, and prideful, and the, the, the prideful Peter, the guy that stick his foot in his mouth, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 5, 5-7. He says, this is proof of God's sanctifying work in Peter's life. Proof of that, that Peter paid attention to these moments that Jesus was trying to teach them. He says, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the what? To the humble. And then he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is Peter. This is this transformed Peter writing all these years later saying, You guys, humble yourself. So, no matter where you're at, no matter, you know, I don't know if you're in this season now of doubt or, or, or failure, but when you do, I pray that it leads you to greater faith and, and more intimate prayer with the Father. Okay, let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you for these stories. I thank you for um, Peter's faith, and uh, that even though he blew it in, in in this in these stories, God, he stuck stuck by you. He trusted in you, and uh, so I'm thankful that we get to see um, see what uh, what that looks like all those years later. God, help us in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our failures, to, to recognize our own limitations, to see that as an opportunity to surrender to you and to trust you for what you have for us. And, and may it be for your glory, and may it be for others' benefit, and even our own joy as we come through those times um, with greater faith, with greater um, dependence upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, stick around. I think we have...
some food? Do we have some food? Who's who brought? What group brought food? Okay, Madison's group. So stick around, hang out. We'd love to talk. If you have any questions, let us know. And break.